Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So like Mark said, we've been going over the series for the last couple of weeks on the characteristics and the attributes of God. We've seen and we've talked about his holiness, how unfathomable he is in our own minds. And the main sticking point to me, the thing that has always struck, stuck out to me, is that we have made our God too human. We have restricted and limited his holiness and his wisdom, and I believe we've done the same with his love. God's love is entirely different than ours. I think that we made a couple of mistakes whenever it comes to thinking about God's love. And the first mistake is this, is that when we think of ourselves and we think of love, we think of human relationships, right? We just had uh, this holiday last Tuesday, Valentine's Day, and we, we tend to think of love sort of in that sense. So Valentine's Day where we get dressed up, spend a little bit too much money on a restaurant, a little bit too much money on candy and dinner reservations and chocolate. And we think of love, we might picture a couple getting all gushy over each other, going back and forth saying the favorite things, I love your eyes, I love whatever. And I think whenever we, we think about these things, and we know that in that couple, right, the two people have, um, they like the majority of that person or else they wouldn't love them, right? They love the majority of that person. In their mind, they have created a worth in that other person. They know that the other person is worthy of receiving their love. And I think we think of this in our relationship with God. We feel as though we are good enough for the love of God or that somehow we've earned it. Because in our minds, in our human mindset, I'm guilty of it. And if we're honest with each other, I'm sure we all can, we all can agree. We think that we're good enough. That when we look around us, when we look at the world around us, we see other people and how bad they are. And we look at ourselves and we see, you know, I'm not that bad, so I must, must be good enough. Morally, we are in pretty good standing, right? So God must love us for that. And I'm sorry to pop some bubbles in here. It popped my own when I was writing the sermons, but we are not that great, <laughs> We're actually not even in the realm of goodness that we need to be. We are rebellious. We are in bad standy, standing. When compared to the wonder and majesty and holiness of our Lord, we do not deserve an ounce of the love of God. But that's the beauty of it, right? He gives it away freely. We actively, openly rebel in our own lives and sin against God we make ourselves enemies of the Father, and yet He still loves us. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So although we are unworthy of the love of God, He gives it away freely. 
The second mistake to understand is that God's love is completely different than ours because it is unconditional. We get this cool word in the Greek language called agape, which means God's unconditional love. But in our human relationships, we love people or we love things because we can get something back from it. You know, it, it, if that's reciprocal love or a position or a friendship or a relationship, we get something back whenever we love other humans, other items. However, this is not so for God. He loves without the presupposition that he's going to get anything back. He loves without the, without the presupposition that he will be loved in return. He's, he's not going to get anything out of the deal. He doesn't expect anything, but he still gives freely. He gives his love freely. Jesus himself paints us a picture of our human situation compared to the love of God in the Gospel of Luke. So if you have your Bibles, that's where we'll be, is Luke 15 for the majority of this message. So while you're turning that, let me pray for us as we continue. Dear God, I pray that um, as we look to a familiar passage of Luke 15, God, I pray that you would open our eyes. God, that you would use me to speak and that my words would not be my own, would not be human words, but that would, they would be your divine words. God, it's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. So we'll be in Luke 15 for the majority of the day. To give a little bit of context for what we're going through, Jesus is in the middle of teaching. He's in the middle of giving um, some parables. And in Luke 15, the chapter starts out with, with some Pharisees that are, that are pretty unhappy with Jesus. He's been teaching, and the Pharisees start causing just this mumbling, start causing um, some ruckus. So the Pharisees are hounding on Jesus for eating with, spending time with, and loving the sinners and the tax collectors and at the time. In response to this, in response to this mumbling, Jesus tells a threefold story of the love of God. So if you're there, we're going to start at verse 1 of Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. So for the past four weeks, I've been an intern here, and I've, I love most of working here. I love getting to see the inner workings of a church, getting to see uh, the different things that go on within a church. But my favorite thing, my absolute favorite thing, is that every day I make a drive to Lincoln to Mount Pulaski, and about at the end of that drive, there's a field of goats, and I get to see those goats, and that's my favorite thing about this internship. I mean, the wisdom of marketing is great, and you know, I get, to, I get to understand a little bit more about how a church works, and I get to obviously talk with you good people, but goats. One day, Parker and I were driving back to Lincoln, and we looked over at that field because it's one of our highlights, and we saw a problem. One of the goats had gotten its head stuck in the fence. 
And we felt really bad and really poor, and we didn't know what to do. We were like, ah, we don't know how to help a goat. Like, do we just take the thing and rip it back into the fence? Like, that's probably not going to be good. That might cause some damage. But what we had realized upon further inspection is that goat had gotten itself stuck because although there was grass all the way around him, there was perfectly good grass everywhere else, he wanted the grass that was on the other side of the fence. The fence. So he stuck his head out and was eating at the grass that was there. Now, for some of you, you might be thinking at this point in the story, um, wow, that's a really poor goat. I'm so sad for that goat. That's a really sad story. And oh my gosh, why did we let this intern come into our church if he doesn't have the decency to get that goat out of a situation? I will confess, I'm sorry, we did not stop and help. And some of you might be saying, why in the world is he telling this story? We didn't hear anything about goats in the last passage. That's fine. Let me try and transition really quick. Sheep and goats have the same similar characteristic of being really stupid. (laughs) Sheep are stupid, disgusting creatures. You know, when we think of them, a lot of the time we think of them, we think of these cute little white fluffy things that we can just hold and hug for days and we can... We count them as we go to sheep. They're so peaceful. But no, that's not what sheep are. They're gross. They're disgusting. They're they're dumb. So, that begs the question, who are we supposed to be in this story? There's a reason that so many times in the scripture where God the Father or Jesus describes his people as sheep or describes himself as a shepherd. Because we are a people that if you'll think about it a little bit, if you'll look inside yourself, that are stupid and silly sometimes. I will admit to that. I have been stupid multiple times throughout my life, and I will continue to be throughout my entire life. And because of our stupidity, we become lost. We go astray. And yet, God still seeks us out. It doesn't matter the past of a person. God still seeks us out through the Holy Spirit. God's love is one that is not satisfied with a few people coming back to him. He yearns for the entirety of his creation to fall back in love with their creator. God loves the stupid. Even when we don't realize that we are falling away or walking away, God still loves us and seeks after us. God loves us even when we subconsciously sin, even when we're unaware. He wants to show us a better way. And the beautiful thing about God's love is he doesn't just say, here, figure it out, figure out how to be a better person. He picks us up on his shoulders and walks us back to himself. He loves us, even when we are stupid. Let's continue on, starting at verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels, the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now this one's a little bit different because the coin doesn't have the cognitive um, characteristics in order to to be stupid a coin isn't making the decision to be lost it simply is lost 
The coin doesn't have a mind or a will. It doesn't say, well, today I'm going to go run, uh, run with the sheep. No, it, it was just lost. And yet, it is still thought out. That although there are some people in our world that are simply lost because they are lost, they are still sought out by our Father who loves the entirety of His creation. And there's another beautiful point within those two short verses is that there is much value within the coin. When we relate ourselves to the sheep, we also must relate ourselves to the coin in the fact that God has placed His own inherent value within each and every single one of us. Now the coin in this particular passage is called a drachma, and it's worth a day's wages. And so an interesting part of that passage to me is that there's no male in that story. It's just a woman who is trying to find her coin. Now in our uh, day and age, we might say, well, that woman doesn't need a man. She can find her coin on herself. Thank you very much. She don't need nobody. But we must continue to always look back at the context of what, on what this is written. And the fact is, there was no way she could be earning a living wage like that without doing... Um, selling her body or, or doing some other slave-type work. There was no way she could be earning that money by herself. And so she loses 10% of her value just by the fact she loses one simple coin. And although the analogy doesn't perfectly match up, but God values us like that woman values that coin. Not because of the fact that it will buy her food or it would reciprocate anything, but by the fact that God simply has put his own value within each and every one of us. He has put the value of that coin within us. We are held highly in his sight. He seeks us out even when we land in a lost place. Let's continue on, starting at verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he, he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to be to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Again, we have to go back to the context. We have to pause there to to mention the ridiculous the ridiculousness of this story, the absolute absurdity of what's going on. In asking for an inheritance, in the son's asking for his inheritance, he is wishing that he'd rather have the stuff of the Father rather than the presence of the Father. He would rather have his value rather than his presence. The son is wishing death upon his father. He's wishing that he would rather die so that he can gain his money, his land, his whatever. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, is he immediately goes off and spends it all in reckless living. In that distant country, he spends all of his money on drugs, sex, and rock and roll. It's completely reckless. It completely undermines the values of being a son at that time. He is low. 
And Jesus solidifies this fact. He puts an exclamation point saying he wants to be like the pigs. He yearns for the pods the pigs are eating. And in that culture, in that context, that saying absolutely horrified people. To be among the pigs is the lowest of the low. There is no farther down that this son can go. And so at this point, the audience has to be absolutely horrified. This son has disregarded every social norm. He has destroyed every ideal of being his son. He is at the lowest. But I imagine the Pharisees may be acting a little bit different than the, than the rest of the audience. I can see that Pharisees just wringing their hands together saying, yes, that son deserves to be where he is. That son deserves to be among the pigs. He deserves to be lost. He deserves to be gone. He had rebelled. But Jesus was about to flip the ideal so many times like he has before of God's love on its head. Let's keep reading. Starting in verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. So the, the guy sort of has a little bit of sense left in him, right? He understands that in the father's presence was better than wherever he was at that moment. He decides to return. But there's a caveat to there. He doesn't believe that he can come back as a son. But he still wants to be in the presence of the Father. And again, I can imagine the Pharisees reveling in the fact of the demise of the Son. And they're probably expecting the Father not to accept him back, but to say, Be gone. You are no longer a son of mine. You do not deserve anything of mine. You don't get it. But they... God, that's not how the story goes. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Thank the Lord that he welcomes us back with open arms. Thank the Lord that he casts our sin as far as the east is to the west. That our God is one that always chooses open arms above clenched fists. When our own self or even others try and bring back our past of failure, our past of sin, our past of whatever, whenever we get those negative thoughts and we create this terrible image of ourselves, we have to remind ourselves that our God is a Father who intimately loves us and wants to be close. Not only that, but He runs after us with open arms saying, I love you. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ 
Jesus our Lord. God loves the rebellious. He loves the lost. And he loves the stupid. He accepts us back as sons and daughters even when we deserve to be less. He wants to be intimately close with us. He seeks us. But that's not where the parable ends. In the parable of the prodigal son, the prodigal son is not the son we're supposed to be looking at. There's another son in this story. Starting at verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what he was doing. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this, this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so we need to identify ourselves in this story. Trust me, if, if you're the first one, if you're the prodigal son who needs the reminder of God's love, let it be known that God is not mad at you. He's not, he's not looking for you to be perfect as you are. He's looking for you to just start coming back. He loves you intimately and is seeking after you. He wants to be close. But for some of us in this room, I think we might have known that for a while. Some of us might need to consider ourselves as the other son. Have we become more like the older son? The son who stayed but somehow missed the lesson of his father's love. The other son had known his father for all his life. The father had taught him the way of compassion and love, but somehow the other brother missed it. Have we missed those lessons? Have we missed what it means to love like the father loves? God is one that loves his creation, and we as Christians who claim to follow him should do the same. I fear that people outside of the church have begun to see the things that we are against rather than the, th the love that we have for people. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were. Jesus isn't telling this story, these parables, for the audience. He's telling them He's telling the Pharisees a story. He's giving the Pharisees an open invitation and saying, guys, you've missed it. You've missed what I've been talking about this whole time. You've missed the fact that we're supposed to, to love others, to be with others. He's giving an invitation to them to saying, saying, please come back to the heart of where it needs to be. Rather than praising and encouraging Jesus, the Pharisees have taken it upon themselves to rebuke him for having community with sinners. And Jesus ends the story without a resolution. That's maybe one of the most beautiful things about it. Jesus is giving them that invitation, saying, are you going to be like that older brother? Are you going to, are you going to stay outside? Are you going to go in? He's saying, Pharisees, please, come alongside me in this. Love people. 
And I think Jesus is giving us that same invitation. Our, our call as Christians is to take the posture of the Father with open arms rather than the posture of the other brother who had clenched fists. We must always make the choice of love. In response to the Father's love for us, we are to love others. So how do we do that? How do we show that love of God to others? And I just have a couple of suggestions. The first one I, I stole from Paul. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Paul is trying to cultivate a better community with the church of Philippi. He's urging them, saying, you know of the love that God has for you. You know of this love. Act like it. He urges them to be unified within that love of Christ. He says to put others' interests and problems above our own. So many problems in our life are just the fact that we're selfish. We would rather have our own way rather than just pushing someone up on the pedestal. We are called to look out for the interests of others. That's how Jesus did. The second thing that I would suggest is something I heard yesterday. Elsie, uh, you had a leaderships conference, and I, and I went, and Hayden Shaw said something that stuck out to me. Is that when we are loving, we are to act like Jesus to the lost. And we must remember that Jesus was never mean. He was never mean to people that are lost. For the, for the teachers and the Pharisees and the scribes at the time, he maybe was a little hard and pushed them back a little bit because they were supposed to know better. But for the lost, he never was mean. He met them where they were. We need to be a people that are not mean. God loves us deeply, fully, Completely. In response, we must choose others above ourselves. We must always choose empathy over apathy, and we must always choose love over hate. Let me finish by reading the passage we, we saw at the beginning. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Jesus, of his love, of how he chose to seek out the lost, to seek out the sinners, and to be 
in community with them. God, I thank you that he was never mean-spirited. God, that it is not in your nature to be hateful. God, we pray that that becomes less and less a part of our nature. God, let us be like your son. In his name I pray. Amen.